Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, legislators work to pass dozens of bills as the year comes to a close. We break down the lame duck session, what bills passed, and what's left on the table. The one thing about lame duck is it's lame duck and it's you don't know where the ducks are coming from. So, and no one talks about it until the last minute because they don't want too much opposition. Plus, fallout after former President Donald Trump is banned from appearing on Colorado's primary ballots for his role in the January 6th Capitol riot. Will other states like New Jersey follow? And now that the Colorado uh, Supreme Court decision has come down, um, we have a pretty good idea of how to proceed right after Christmas. Also, improving maternal health. Newark Mayor Roz Baraka hosts the Cradle Project Conference to improve outcomes and awareness for expecting moms. Bold efforts are needed to transform the maternal health crisis, particularly for women of color. And after the storm, Monday's torrential rain and flooding continues to impact parts of New Jersey as flooded roads and power outages plague the state. But the fact is, there's no denying, New Jersey's climate is changing. We're getting warmer. We're seeing more large rainstorms. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJPBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us on this Thursday night. I'm Joanna Gagas, in for Brianna Venozzi. The legislature convened its final voting session of the calendar year today, trying to push through dozens of bills that were introduced this year, some that faced a great deal of controversy, others that had very little attention brought to them. Now, it's not the final voting day of the legislative session. New Jersey's legislature will return after the holiday break to vote on any outstanding bills. And while they have more time to move any languishing bills next month, Many are feeling the pressure of the deadline and working to get their last pieces of legislation over the finish line. Senior political correspondent David Cruz was in the State House today tracking some of the bills that we've covered throughout the year and highlighting those that passed as well as those that will have a major impact on residents in the Garden State. There's a leisurely pace to the final legislative session of 2023. A lot of chit-chatting and collegial hanging out. But behind the scenes, there's a buzz of activity and a push for bills, good and bad, to get passed before the end of the session. So what can we expect on this final session of 2023? Well, nobody knows, because right. all of a sudden, out of nowhere, affordable housing pops up. The one thing about lame duck is it's lame duck, and it's you don't know where the ducks are coming from. So, and no one talks about it until the last minute because they don't want too much opposition. As you can see, the affordable housing came up. The things that you might think are coming up don't come up because people know about it and therefore there's opposition. So that's kind of how it works. The assembly housing bill, which surprised everyone, would turn the affordable housing process in New Jersey on its head. We want to put in place a system that operates more smoothly, recognizes that more input from communities, and gives everybody the opportunity to, to get to a place where we're going to make sure that we get the best product, meaning the most affordable housing that we can in the state. But it's not clear if the bill, which got an assembly hearing but no vote, 
and hasn't even been scheduled for hearing in the Senate, will make it through this session. I'm hearing the affordable housing is not going to happen. It should not happen. Whether you are in favor of affordable housing reform or not, dropping a 68-page bill days before the end of the, the session, it's ridiculous. And it's, it screams uh, anti-democracy with a, with a small d. It's, it's really a bad way to make law. In the Senate, we have not had a chance to, to review it yet. Uh, it's a pretty in-depth uh, bill. Uh, I don't really have any comment on it. I haven't seen it yet. It's a lot for lame duck session, though, no? You know, I, I, don't, I can't comment on it. I have, I have not read any aspects of the, of the, of the, of the bill. You, I can't, do you can't say if the 68-page bill is a lot for the lame duck session. So what other questions do you have? There's talk of a bill that would reauthorize the Transportation Trust Fund, which could technically wait until next session, and another bill that would raise salaries for lawmakers and other state officials, which could also probably wait, but probably won't. An ACLU-led coalition of organizations has been promoting a people's lame duck agenda, which includes economic and social justice priorities like reinstating the corporate business tax surcharge to fund mass transit, a non-starter here, and the creation of civilian complaint review boards, CCRBs, with subpoena power, a big maybe at best. Instead, a bill to reinstate penalties for underage drinking looks like it has the votes in the Senate. It's creating um, new fees and fines for youth who possess or consume alcohol. We know that fees and fines have been proven for decades to not be an effective way to prevent youth from um, drinking. Angela McKnight has been ushering the CCRB pilot program through the legislature. What makes you think that these guys are gonna go for that? Listen, we I moved it to become a pallet, right? And a pallet is a trial. And then we do have the four cities, the four municipalities, who agreed to have it. So only thing I, I, I asked my colleagues to do is tr let's trust the process. We have nothing right now, and we know we need to keep moving forward to have more transparency, more accountability. Today's session could go long and still prove to be a bit of an anticlimax. But as everyone we talked to today pointed out, there's still two weeks to go before the session officially ends. And a lot could actually happen before they turn the lights out on the 220th session of the state legislature. I'm David Cruz, NJ Spotlight News. Embattled Senator Bob Menendez is seeking multiple delays in his corruption trial. His legal team sent a letter today to the New York court where his case is being heard, asking for a two-month delay for the start of the trial from May until July of next year. That is notably after the 2024 Democratic primary. Senator Menendez is also asking for a more immediate delay, pushing off the pretrial motion scheduled for early next month by one week. You'll recall Menendez and his wife Nadine are accused of taking cash, gold bars, and a Mercedes-Benz in exchange for political influence. Now, in his letter, Menendez and his legal team cite the 15 million pages of documents produced by the prosecution as one major reason for requesting the delay. Those pages include text messages, emails, search warrants, and more, which his lawyers argue is the equivalent to reviewing the 26 million book collection in the Library of Congress. His legal team also citing the trial's complex and unprecedented, noting the government 
government has never prosecuted a sitting senator on foreign agent charges. Now, lawyers on top of the prosecution's evidence say they'll also need time to conduct their own investigation, which may include traveling to Egypt to interview potential witnesses. As of now, the senator's trial is set for May 6th. Joining me now to discuss this latest development is Chris Carmiccioni, former assistant U.S. attorney in New Jersey. Chris, thanks so much for being here with us tonight. I want to just start with, you know, we, we see these uh, Menendez attorneys asking for a two-month delay. How unusual is that, just off the, off the bat, to ask for that amount of time? I think it's extremely common, especially in complex white-collar cases like this, where there's not just a lot of discovery overall, a lot of classified information. Uh, it's really, really common, and I don't think the ask for two months is really all that unreasonable. Let's talk about the amount of evidence that the prosecution produced, 15 million pages. What goes into analyzing that content, kind of prioritizing where the prosecution's gonna go? What goes into it? How much time does that take? Well, you know, he's got a defense team and all of the defendants, they wanna look at all that discovery because it's in response to a, a, an obligation the government has to turn that evidence over. And the government doesn't have to identify what they consider is inculpatory or what's going to be used at trial. So you almost have to step into the shoes of the prosecutor to figure out what would you present if you were the prosecutor. And then you also, at the same time, are looking to things that are helpful or corroborate your case, anything that's potentially exculpatory, anything that helps negate any of the elements the government has to prove to meet their burden. So you're almost performing two functions as you comb through all of that. But most importantly, you just don't want to be surprised at trial if there's something that's presented. You just want to be intimately familiar with all the materials that the government has at their disposal. And the defense team here makes the case that, look, the prosecution has had four years to build this case. They only have a matter of months. And they say they need to conduct their own investigation. Some of that includes foreign players, right? What would or what could their investigation look like? Well, it depends on uh, what they're looking for is any information that negates the criminal intent that's necessary to prove the charges filed against them. Um, another big piece of their case, as you saw in the filing of the correspondence they submitted to the court, is they're going to hang their hat on the speech and debate clause. They're going to argue that a lot of this is protected. And if, if, some of the, if, the, if the court agrees that speech and debate clause protects some of the, the senator's uh, communications, a lot of the evidence the government may consider using a trial could fall out, really change the face of it. Um, but that's a, it's a great point because they have been looking at this for a number of years. It's supposed to be tried in May 2024. And, you know, the first time that Senator Menendez and his team finds out about it is, is most likely upon return of the indictment. It's not like the government gives a heads up that this is what we're, this is what we're investigating necessarily. They might get a target letter at best, but nothing more than that. So it's fair to allow the defense to, to do their jobs. And, you know, the defendant has a constitutional right to defend himself. This is all coming from the obligation to try a case within 70 days of a return of an indictment under the Speedy Trial Act. But there's a number of exceptions to that. And one of them is if the, the, the judge finds that the ends of justice are satisfied by allowing a brief continuance of the matter. And that's where you find yourself here. I don't so think there's any reasonable. Yeah. Menendez has said, and his lawyers now argue, this is not an open and shut case. They say there's, a, there's no precedent right now for the feds to try a sitting senator on this foreign agent charge. How difficult do you believe, given what we know, what evidence exists at the moment, will it be for the prosecution to make this case? Well, if, if you believe what, what's alleged in the indictment, uh, they intentionally drafted a really lengthy, called a speaking indictment, with a lot of detail. 
And they do that because what they have to demonstrate is corrupt intent, that the, the senator and the defendants in this case conspired to corruptly steer things of value to the senator in return for his official influence on certain matters to include national security. But they're going to spin that and they're going to say, look, um, this has nothing to do with my obligation as a senator. I was on the Foreign Arms, Arms Relations Committee. Like, there is no evidence of corrupt intent. Chris Carmiccioni, great insight. Thank you so much. Sure, thank you. Have a great holiday and look forward to chatting with you all again. Newark Mayor Roz Baraka shined a light on the need for better maternal health care in Newark today in a roundtable discussion that brought together thought leaders from around the state, including two candidates for the U.S. Senate seat, First Lady Tammy Murphy and U.S. Senator Bob Menendez. The First Lady has championed this issue across the state, and today's discussion narrowed that focus to maternal health care and how it can actually impact the entire life of a child, including early literacy outcomes. Melissa Rose Cooper has more. The loss of a mother is an incredible challenging experience and it becomes even more difficult for a child to comprehend when linked to complications during their birth. Oftentimes the impact of this loss, this loss has on children, especially girls, who will one day have to decide if they wish to have children is not discussed. Feelings Gabrielle Thomas knows all too well as her own mother passed away while giving birth to her. For me, my mother's experience has greatly influenced my views on childbirth. As a result, I'm a staunch believer that all expectant mothers and their families should be equipped with the necessary tools to advocate for themselves. Our healthcare system, in turn, must ensure that their concerns receive the attention and care they deserve. An informed and empowered expectant mother is the bedrock of a thriving community. So members of the community joined health experts and elected officials in Newark today for the Cradle Project Conference. The goal is to figure out what can be done to improve positive outcomes for expectant mothers. We need to make sure that pregnant mothers have access to health care, that they have access to primary care physicians, doulas, if you will. They have access to all kinds of folks that are, that are around them and able to make sure that they're getting the vitamins that, that we take for granted, the vitamins that people are supposed to get, the attention that they're supposed to get, the information that they're supposed to get, the counseling. Initiatives Mayor Roz Baraka says are also important as maternal care is linked to a child's educational success. Results of the most recent state student learning assessments revealed many kids are still struggling with learning loss since the pandemic, with only 51.3% of students in grades 3 through 9 meeting proficiency levels in English language arts. There's a lot of data that teaches us and tells us clearly what it is that we need to do to get people to read by third grade. One of the most profound and fundamental things is making sure that we're taking care of their mothers. Right? So if we're not taking care of their mothers, then we are impacting their ability to access information at higher levels. When we open up the data, we realize that also uh, COVID had impacted literacy scores, but it also took another problem that we were struggling with. Very specifically, black mothers. When my husband was first sworn in, New Jersey was one of the most dangerous places in the United States for a mother to give birth. Out of all 50 states, we were ranked 47th for maternal deaths. Uh, but tragically, these deaths do not affect all mothers equally. 
black women in New Jersey were seven times more likely than white women to die from maternity-related complications, and black babies were three times more likely than white babies to die before their first birthdays. For all of their medical complexities and contributing factors, uh, these deaths come down to a single cause, and that is institutional racism. Disparities attendees at the Cradle Project Conference are hoping to end soon so mothers and their children can live the lives they deserve. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Melissa Rose Cooper. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled on Tuesday that former President Donald Trump is not qualified to hold office and is therefore banned from appearing on Colorado's ballots for the 2024 presidential primary or general election. The high court citing the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution that says no person shall hold any office who engaged in insurrection or rebellion. A similar challenge was brought before the courts here in New Jersey by my next guest, who's a resident of Mawa, John Bellocchio. His request was denied, and he's here to talk about it and about what comes next. John, great to have you with us. Thanks for talking with us today. Now, we know that the Colorado Supreme Court ruled uh, to keep Trump off of the 2024 ballot. You had a similar challenge in the courts here in New Jersey. Tell us about that challenge and what happened to it. So right now, there's been a strategic withdrawal because we filed at the exact same time that Minnesota and Colorado did. The strategic withdrawal was put in place because the Colorado Court of Appeals, the intermediate court in Colorado, um, actually sided uh, against those folks who, who brought suit. And within a day, the Minnesota Supreme Court uh, actually sided uh, with, with the former president. So we needed to withdraw and take a look at, at how best to proceed. And now that the Colorado uh, Supreme Court decision has come down, um, we have a pretty good idea of how to proceed right after Christmas. I think it's important to note that then Secretary of State, now Lieutenant Governor Tahisha Way, actually at the time of your first complaint, urged the courts to dismiss it. I believe she said it was right. it was either presumptive or speculative, and forgive me if I don't have the legal verbiage correct, but explain why she did that. So uh, Lieutenant Governor Way uh, directed her counsel, you are correct, uh, because presumptive meaning she was not sure that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee upon original filing. When we did this, there were eight uh, Republicans in addition to Trump seeking the nomination. Uh, we're down to New Jersey's former governor, Chris Christie, um, and uh, Nikki Haley, really, who are kind of in the hunt. And frankly, I mean, the polls just show that there's not enough math on the table. And so I, I think it is also no longer presumptive. I don't think that's a valid argument. And ultimately, this is very likely to go to the United States Supreme Court, where they're going to need to take this on. How do you believe this court will rule on this issue of the 14th Amendment and Donald Trump not being uh, able to serve because, and also there's been no conviction yet, right, of uh, an insurrection charge. So how do you think this Supreme Court is likely to rule? Well, I, I think they're actually likely uh, to rule uh, five to four uh, in the favor of individuals who are trying to take Mr. Trump off the ballot. And, I, and I'll tell you exactly why I, I think that is. First of all, the 14th Amendment uh, to the U.S. Constitution, Section 3, shows that it is self-executing. The question is, would any reasonable person believe that what happened on the morning of the 6th of January 
qualify as behavior that is an insurrection. And I think, by and large, when you look at the horrible events that transpired that day, the answer is yes. And I mean, Mr. Trump is on tape directing people to go to the Capitol and do this. So it's a self-executing clause. There doesn't need to be a conviction. And the New Jersey Constitution uh, prevents those who have committed treason against the state or the United States from receiving the electoral votes of the state of New Jersey. So ultimately, in the United States Supreme Court, you believe that there would be a ruling in favor of removing former President Donald Trump from the ballot? I, I do. I think uh, the three uh, liberal justices, and I think uh, they would be joined personally, I think they would be joined um, by Chief Justice Roberts and uh, very likely by Justice Coney Barrett. Um, they, they are fair but strict constitutionalists. And I think they very much want to preserve the quorum of, uh, of, of the government. I think they know an insurrection when they say it. I don't think they're political. John Bellocchio, interesting perspective there. Thank you for coming on and sharing it with us. You're very welcome. Well, this week's storm left the state pretty soggy in some places and still flooded days after the rain started in other places. North Jersey saw some of the most severe flooding with drivers needing to be rescued from their cars, others with flooded homes. Towns and cities bordering the Passaic River saw the worst of it, like Wayne, Little Falls, Passaic, Lincoln Park, and Patterson. Patterson Mayor Andre Saya held an event today to explain how the flooding combined with freezing temperatures were leading to dangerous road conditions enough to close the Patterson schools for the next two weeks. Ted Goldberg was there and has more. Three days after Monday's rainstorm and much of North Jersey is still flooded. The Passaic River overflowed on Tuesday, choking off roads and forcing more than 30 people in Patterson to evacuate. I feel badly for those residents that have to endure this, especially right before Christmas. Mayor Andre Saya declared a state of emergency earlier this week and said the Silk City schools will be closed until the new year. Don't want to put anyone in danger, and I want people to know it's about the students, it's about the staff, it's about people who drive the buses. We don't want them driving on black ice and sliding and creating an accident or hurting someone, a pedestrian. You get a situation where you get a, uh, you know, some very cold air coming in right behind the rain event, and it doesn't need to be a flooding event, but it just could be just a rain event. You can get black ice. Uh, you don't need a lot of rain to have black ice form and, and have that uh, impact travel. While New Jersey is no stranger to flooding, weather experts tell us this storm was unusually rainy for this time of year. North Jersey doesn't typically get three to five inches of rain during a December rainstorm. It's sad, you know, any time of year we're going into the holiday season. And unfortunately, it looks like we're going to see, you know, we're going to see flooding, at least on the main stem Passaic River, last all the way through Christmas. The storm was a powerhouse um, from Florida up to Maine. Rutgers climatologist Dave Robinson says this was the wettest December rainstorm on record, with those state records dating back to the late 1800s. The ground was saturated, the rivers were up, and it, that exacerbated the situation. This would have been a bad situation had it not rained for weeks before it. But the fact that the ground was already saturated, uh, the water had nowhere to go. The ground tends to be moister because there's less evaporation than in the summer. Um, the ground, the grasses aren't growing, the trees aren't using that moisture. So it doesn't take as much rain in the winter to generate a flood than it would in the summer. 
Robinson added that climate change has made these kind of storms more intense and more frequent. Can I tell you how much more rain fell than would have fallen? No, not for an individual storm. Uh, but it stands to reason with this more ramped up, souped up atmosphere that just that much more energy went to the storm, just that much more rain fell. At one point, Patterson had to close 28 streets, but some of them have reopened. Mayor Sayas says parts of his city are particularly prone to flooding, and the city is looking at potential solutions. Are there measures we can take with federal state funding that could help Patterson mitigate the impact that these floods or these storms are having in Patterson? Because they're, they're very severe. While weather experts say this could be a rainy winter because of El Nino in the Pacific, Sayas says there is some good news in his city. The river, though, is receding. That's encouraging because when it crested, it got up to over 10 feet. And now it's gone down like significantly. Well, I'd say like several inches. In the meantime, drivers in North Jersey will have to be on the lookout for road closures. The National Weather Service encourages drivers turn around, don't drown if there's too much water on the street. In Patterson, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. In our Spotlight on Biz report tonight, the Newark Bay Bridge that connects Newark to Bayonne will be doubling in size. The New Jersey Turnpike Authority has approved a $149 million project to turn the four-lane bridge into two twin bridges that have four lanes moving in each direction. The Newark Bay Bridge runs as an extension of Route 78 and the New Jersey Turnpike, bringing drivers to exit 14 and 14A of the Turnpike. Now, the project is intended to ease traffic that often plagues that stretch of road, but opponents say it'll only increase traffic and, by extension, the pollution that residents in the region will be left to suffer with. They point to the high rates of asthma that already affect residents in and around Jersey City. Others cite the hefty price tag of replacing and widening the bridge. It is part of a larger project that totals close to $11 billion and is the largest turnpike project in history. Taking a look at how the markets closed today, stocks rebounded after the biggest single-day loss in months. Here's a look at how they closed. And that's going to do it for us tonight, but don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Joanna Gagas for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us tonight. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together.